We're back this evening in the Acts of the Apostles, or as we've said, perhaps more accurately, the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, and we've come to the end of chapter 4. Acts and chapter 4. If we dive in toward the middle of the chapter, we'll take account of the fact that uh, James, uh, Peter, rather, and John were uh, in the temple, that in the name of Christ they had seen this man healed who had been uh, lame from his birth. That had provoked now the first confrontation of this full new covenant era between the apostles and the church of Christ and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. And the council had threatened Peter and John not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. And having threatened them, they don't know what else they can do. So they finally let them go and they go back to their own companions and they together plead with the God of heaven. As you remember last week, we considered the way that these people prayed to the living and true God, interpreting the Old Testament in light of the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and pleading that God himself would rise up for the glory of his name. And we begin to read particularly now in verse 31, having pleaded that God would work through the name of his holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's turn to God briefly. Father, having prayed, we ask again, not because we think we'll get for our much asking, but because we know that you love to hear the voice of your children calling upon you. Father, we do plead that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would lift our hearts as we study this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is part of the beautiful writing of a delightful history. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes well. Not just in the, the details and the phrases, but in the overarching structure of his uh, history of the acts of the risen Christ. As happens from time to time, it's one of uh, Luke's distinctives in this history, action gives way to both conclusion and transition. So you can go back, if you like, to the end of chapter, 40, uh, chapter 2, verse 42, 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Snapshot. Action. Pause. Summary. And Luke's just not saying, okay, that's what we've covered because as we'll at least, I hope, begin to pick up, Luke is, is brilliant at tying off the threads and introducing new themes and characters that will be significant in what follows. So if you were to read on through chapters 5 and 6 and 7 in particular, you would be looking back at the end of what we call chapter 4 and going, oh, right, that's him. Or, ah, that's why. Or, oh, I see why this is an issue. What is being emphasised at this point is, the, is the, the Spirit's impact and influence on those who are being brought into the kingdom of God. When we read, for example, in verse 31, that when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, we shouldn't be thinking that that was like a lightning bolt from heaven. It happened, it lasted a couple of minutes, it moved on and everything went back to normal. No, the, the church of Christ is subject to these repeated infillings by the Holy Spirit that, that sustains them. They're enduring and repeated acts of God. And the presence of the Spirit with these disciples produces a radical transformation. And we can, at least in measure, read through this part of the history and we can say, what are the evidences of the Spirit's presence and power among God's people? What does it look like? What should it feel like? How do we know? Well, bear in mind that we have just passed through the first wave of persecution. That's going to get worse. Notice the effect of it. It has drawn the church closer together. Satan so often tries to destroy, and actually it does good. The wolf comes, and the sheep huddle more closely under the care of the great shepherd. Now, persecution is not the adversary's only trick, and we will sadly see that again before too long. But as the, the saints, under this pressure externally, this persecution from without, as they draw near to God and as they draw near to each other, this summary, concluding and making a transition, gives us a beautiful description and a lovely demonstration of the community life of the new covenant saints of God. So we'll look at that description and we'll consider that demonstration. First of all, the description is there in verses 32 and 33. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There are four great things in this description. There's a great unity, there's a great generosity, there's a great power, and there is great grace. The first thing you've got then is this great 
unity. There's a multitude here. There's a great crowd numbering even thousands. They are those who believe and they are of one heart and one soul. Now, if you go back to chapter uh, 4 and verse 24, remember that they raised their voice to God with one accord. And you understand it's relatively easy to speak with one voice when you are of one heart and one soul. This prayer was the expression of a great multitude who were bound together in Jesus Christ. You see, they're not clones. They're not robots. They've not been programmed. This is not some kind of brainwashing system that means that no one can think for themselves. But these are men and women who've been drawn together to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're united in him. They're united by him and for him. They only have one desire, that God would glorify his name, that Christ would be exalted. So you've got one body that feels with one heart and one soul and can speak with one voice. You've got a spiritual family here that at this point in time seem to be without suspicions, tensions or divisions. It is a beautiful picture of the unity of the church. These are the blessed ties that bind their hearts in Christian love. They have gospel bands that hold them together. Now, there are thousands of them. They're of different ages. They have different economic status. They come from different places. There's a man called Barnabas. He's a Levite from Cyprus. But still, they are of one heart and one soul. This kind of unity is created by nothing apart from the gospel and it is developed, fostered and focused because of Jesus Christ. Now we are living in a time, in a place in which the world is obsessed with creating some kind of unity. What does it produce? Division. The more people emphasise the fact that we shouldn't be separated and try and create a unity that cannot exist outside of Christ, the more emphatic it becomes. And when, when people obsess, for example, about race, so we need to break down the barriers, what does the obsession with race actually create? More barriers. What actually creates unity? It is when we understand that there is one human race, that we are all fallen in Adam and that all who are in Christ actually belong together. When the world tries to create a bond, it actually divides. When the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the barriers that might so easily have existed come tumbling down. My friends, if we want real unity, then we need more of Jesus Christ. We need to see ourselves first and foremost in relation to him. And then those other things will fall away. This great unity then exists in the church, this new covenant body. And with it, there is a great generosity. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So how is this unity being expressed? Well, one of the primary ways is in generosity. 
Luke is telling us that not a single person insisted, this is mine, with regard to the things that God had given to them. Now, we need to understand that in terms of this family dynamic. Ask yourself the question, if a stranger came up to you and said, I am in deep trouble and distress, can you welcome me into your home, feed me, give me a bed and take care of me, you might, now let's be careful here because as Christians we're given to hospitality, but you might say, well, we need to be a wee bit careful here. But if your brother or your sister turned up and said, whoever, whoever your name is, Jeremy, you know, I'm, I'm here, uh, I'm, I'm in a difficult situation, can you give me somewhere to stay? Can you take care of me? Can you provide me with some gift so that I can, I can get through the next few days? How would I respond? You're my brother. You're my sister. Why wouldn't I do that for you? Who are Christ's brothers and sisters? Those who know and do his will. My friends, we need to stop looking at one another as strangers who, I'm not saying we do, but if there's any danger of it, as strangers who happen to be together in the same place, and practically to consider that there is a family dynamic that governs our life together. And what you and I would do for a beloved brother or sister, because not all brothers and sisters naturally are beloved, so a beloved brother or sister is what we should be ready to do one for another. So not a single person said of what God had given them, this is mine. Now this is not what some people would like to think as a, a sort of an early communism which the church has long lost. Notice this is not a matter of demand or hint. These aren't people who are going around saying, oh, by the way, what is yours is mine. This is Christians who are making an offer. What is mine is yours. Communism says, what is yours is mine. Christianity says, what is mine is yours. And that might sound slightly similar, but the gulf between them cannot be calculated. What is of vital importance to remember is that this is fundamentally voluntary. These people were ready to respond in this way. We've seen it before. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, the passage we skipped over at the end of Acts chapter 2. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They're all together for Passover. The Lord has been pleased now at Pentecost to pour out his Spirit upon the church and they take account of the needs that one another have. Even in chapter 5 and verse 4, when we come on to the ugly occurrence of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter doesn't say in the light of the selling of their land and the money that they'd gained, you knew that belonged to the church, didn't you? No, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? It's yours. It's not ours. It's not even ours to say you have to give it to us but it is yours to give. And without jumping too far ahead, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't give it all, but that they said they did and then held some back and so lied to the Holy Ghost. What you have then here, building on this sweet 
gospel unity is this great gospel generosity. These people have become not grabbers, but givers. Not accumulators, but stewards. They saw what God had given them as a blessing that they could use for the whole body of Jesus Christ. Who have they started to sound like? How have they started or who have they started to live like? What has gripped their hearts? My friends, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look in Luke 16 and verse 13, for example. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't be a Christian with one hand and grab the world and its stuff with the other. My friends, have the things of this world, perhaps we should say not so much have you lost their grip on them, but have they lost their grip on you? How do you perceive what you have been given? Now you might say, well, we're not very wealthy. Well, not everybody here was very wealthy, as we'll see in a moment. Can I ask you, what is your disposition, if not toward money, then toward your strength? When you're given opportunities to serve in the church of Jesus Christ, when there's scope for you to bless others who have genuine need, when you can minister to those who uh, perhaps are young in the faith or struggling with a difficult situation, when you think of things like the nursery and the Sunday school and hospitality and teas and coffees and church cleaning and even those very simple things, that, ah, that's something I can do. That's a way that I can bless others. Why? Because these are my people. These are my family. This is what I do. I see this world and its things, my resources, the blessings that God has given me, not as things that I want to get and keep, but as things that I want to use and give. Great unity, grounded in the gospel. Great generosity, patterned in the gospel. Great power. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I think we're digging down now through the layers. There's great unity. It gives rise to great generosity. But there's great power that lies behind this dynamic. The apostles in particular had sustained boldness and fruitfulness in their witness to the resurrection. Now this again is emphatic in the early chapters of Acts. This is what they are called to do. Chapter 1 and verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me. Who's speaking? The risen Jesus. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then in verse 22. 
They need someone who's been amongst them from the baptism of John to the day when God was, Christ was taken up from them. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's what we're about. That's what we do. We testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That carries you into chapter 2 and verse 32. What's one of Peter's conclusions as he comes to the end of his great Pentecostal sermon? This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. You go over into chapter 3. You've got now the preaching in Solomon's porch. Verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Verse 16. The name of Jesus the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses it is his name through faith in his name that this man has been made strong whom you see and know then chapter 4 and verse 12 nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name than this name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved whose name go back to verse uh, verse 10 that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man stands here before you whole what did they pray when they were persecuted Lord, look on their threats, verse 29 of chapter 4, that with all boldness your servants may speak your word. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. If you're going to summarise the apostolic ministry, it is the bold declaration of a risen Jesus. Now, can you preach a risen Jesus without a crucified Jesus? No. Can you preach a crucified and risen Jesus without explaining who this Jesus of Nazareth is? You've seen what we've studied in Acts chapter 2, that Pentecostal sermon. You've traced, again, similar marks of apostolic ministry in the sermon that was preached in Solomon's porch. They tell the person, they tell of the life, they tell of the death and then the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And they do so with power. Brothers and sisters, this is the means by which the church of Jesus Christ grows. This is what the world needs to know. That the Son of God has come into the world, taken flesh and blood, suffered and died on behalf of his people and has risen from the grave. And that's not something, as we heard this morning, from which we need to back away because it's supernatural and the world doesn't like it and the world doesn't get it. That's exactly what sinners need to hear. And without embarrassment... Without shame, without restraint, without dilution, that's the good news that we need to speak in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That if you are not yet a Christian, he is the Jesus that we want you to trust. He is the one upon whom you must rely. There is no other name except the name of the risen Nazarene by which sinners like us can be saved. But whoever trusts in him who died but rose again in testimony of his triumph, will be saved. Amen. 
And when the apostles spoke these things, sinners were saved. Jerusalem sinners. The crucifiers believe in the risen Jesus. And they are brought into his kingdom. The result of this power is not just the liveliness of the saints, but it's the life of those who were dead in their sins and transgressions. My friends, this is an encouragement to, to us. By what means does God advance his kingdom in the world? Is it great eloquence? No. Is it great learning? No. Great charisma? No. Great fame? No. Great power amongst men whom God is pleased to form and use for his glory. I don't need to be a great person. I don't need to have great gifts, and neither do you. If God gives great power in answer to our prayers, then no one and nothing will be able to stand before the preaching of the gospel by people like us. My friends, we must start believing in the God whom we trust, not as a mere notion, but as something both known and felt. Do you believe that God can save the people to whom you speak about a risen Jesus? If your answer is, well, not really, I'm not very good at this, do you see the problem? How about when I speak of a risen Christ, I can do so with the prayerful expectation that if I honour him by my clear declaration, that God will honour him by drawing sinners to himself. When he is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. This is gospel preaching. And this is what produces gospel living. It's not in any sense, of course, wrong to preach practical sermons. But the world and the church today abound in courses. They step through a certain number of sequences and after that you're a Christian. Or you know, here's how to live as a Christian in this respect. Here's... Now, some of that has its value, but not if it's divorced from the power of the gospel. We always need to go back to Christ and him crucified. There was great power by the Holy Spirit. And that gospel preaching is what produced this gospel unity and gave rise to this gospel generosity. After all, how can you hear of the Christ who, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor, how can you become a follower of him and say, oh, all this, this is mine? Now, what's the bottom layer? As you dig down, as you work your way through this glorious interaction of gospel unity and gospel generosity, as you see it arising from great power, what lies at the bottom is great grace. Great grace was upon them all. My friends, this is the true foundation. What is great grace? It is heavenly favour, full and free. It is the undeserved goodness of the Most High God poured out upon sinners like us, both to save us and then to raise us, to bless us and to guide us. If you go back again to chapter 2 and verse 40, 
With many other words he had testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 47, they praised God and had favour with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is most marvellous kindness. This is most marvellous goodness. If you want an explanation as to why these people were the way they were, at root it is this, that God was graciously at work in them by the spirit whom he had given, the spirit of the risen Jesus. They showed Christ. The spirit had renewed their hearts. The spirit was transforming and guiding their lives. This this kind of living, my friends, is less worked up and more poured out. It's, it's vitally important, I think, that we understand this. Even as a preacher, there are times when, when you want to just tell people, you know, do this, this is what it looks like. But what's the danger of saying this is what it looks like? What bond are you breaking? You see, if, if you simply create the shell, you can polish the shell, but it's still dead and empty. What you need is the living principle. What you need is the gospel to grip our souls. And the more it does so, the more we see the beauty and the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the greater that transformation will be. How does God change us? We are transformed from glory into glory through seeing our Lord. It's when we learn of Jesus Christ that our character changes. Do you understand now how this is, at least in measure, an answer to the prayers of God's people? Think about how they prayed. You are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Is this what you want in answer to such prayers? That's what we can and should expect. That's what we should desire. This is the pattern. This is the, the underlying reality. This is the foundation, great grace. This is the fruit, great power in witness. This is the evidence, the, the fullness of that fruit amongst the saints, great unity and great generosity. Now, what will Luke do with this? He's going to give us a demonstration. I mean, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Great unity, great generosity, great power, great grace. Luke's going to say, what does that look like? Well, he highlights some particular tangible expressions of this Christ-like spirit that now grips the New Covenant community. He gives us a general positive pattern and a specific 
positive example. Verses 34 and 35 give us the general positive pattern. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is what happens when no one says that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Ties us back in with that demonstration. Now, remember that we said last week, and we'll see this again and again, there are some beautiful echoes or fulfillments of old covenant promise in this new covenant community. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15... You'll see that the Lord makes certain provision for his people in the land. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who's lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. What was the old covenant ideal? That through the blessing of God, there should come a point where no one was poor in their midst. What's the new covenant realisation? It looks like this. It looks like this taking account of these things. Now, bear in mind, most of us are used to an environment in which we own land or property. Many of us have or are in the process of buying a home. That's not normal at this time. Very few people have a house and lands. This is distinct and unusual wealth, and that's why Luke is drawing attention to it. He's saying that some of those who were distinctly blessed in this way also stepped up, that they too showed themselves subject to this same gospel influence. Now, notice again, it was not a requirement. Peter's at the door. I'm sorry to inform you that as one of the wealthier members of the congregation, we're now requiring you to sell your house and your lands and to distribute it or to give it to us. So we, this is not what is happening. This is not a requirement of the gospel. This is a reflex response to the gospel. This is what happens with transformed hearts under such circumstances as these. What did they do with these things? Again, they're not saying, well, we've realized this and we're going to use it as some kind of bargaining chip. They gave it to the apostles. They said, you know what's going on. You take care of these things. We want you to distribute this according to need. Here's one of Luke's little threads that runs through. What's going to happen in chapter 6? Well, the apostles are going to run out of time and strength to manage these resources in the light of all the need that they have. But that's what's going on at this point. The disciples are looking over, the apostles are looking over this congregation numbering in the thousands and there are people who are giving what is theirs by right, offering it to the apostles to distribute to each as anyone had need. Need. Not people who would waste the money, 
not people who were behaving foolishly, not those who were too lazy to work, not those who were incompetent or careless. The apostles knew needs and they used the finances that had been put at their disposal to meet the genuine requirements of the most disadvantaged and vulnerable amongst the people of God. That was the general positive pattern. This great generosity expressed itself not least in these few distinctly wealthy people who said we've got something that we can do. We'll sell our lands, we'll sell our houses, we'll realise at least some of our assets and we'll put them in the hands of the apostles because they know where the real need lies and we'll trust them to make sure that these resources reach the right people. And then you've got a specific positive example. There's a man called Joseph. We know him better as Barnabas. Again, here's Luke. He's introducing a man that we're going to learn a little bit more about over the course of the next few chapters. Barnabas is going to become a prominent man. Why is he called Barnabas? Because the name means son of encouragement. This man is an exhorter. He's a comforter. He's someone who sees the good and is ready to recognise it and, uh, and to, to delight in it. You notice that that's not just his general disposition, but he's also now a Levite of the country of Cyprus. In some respects, he's an outsider. He's a, a Levite from Cyprus. Could this lie behind Barnabas' interest in the spread of the gospel? Is this why he becomes such a significant player in the preaching of God's word? It's Barnabas who goes to Antioch, first of all, sees the grace of God and does what? Encourages the saints. But notice this too. Who is he? He's a Levite. What grace? Here's one of the Old Testament priestly cast who's now in the New Covenant congregation. God is saving men and women like this. He's bringing them into his church. And Barnabas is a wealthy man. Maybe he's got land in Cyprus. We don't know. Maybe he's got land in Jerusalem as a Levite. We're not sure. But either way, he does what other wealthy people do. He has land, so he sells it. And he too brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. This is not, by the way, some kind of veneration or act of worship. This is a general phrase that says he puts it under their care and leaves it at their disposal. Again, this kind of generosity places a great burden on the apostles. One that eventually they cannot carry while still giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word with the kind of power that they are enjoying under the influences of the Holy Spirit. Now again, who does this look like and who does this sound like? Who, though rich, is willing to become poor in order to bless others? Barnabas has been gripped by the spirit of Jesus Christ. These other wealthy men and women have been gripped by the spirit of Jesus Christ. This whole congregation has been gripped by the spirit of Jesus Christ. My friends, the application of this is not go home, sell everything you've got and put it in the church's box. Not much of it would go in that box, but you understand what I mean. That, that's not what we're saying. What we're asking is, given our circumstances and situation, has the great 
gospel grace of God gripped our souls? Do we know anything of this great gospel power? Has it produced in us this beautiful combination of true gospel unity and real gospel generosity? This is a beautiful picture of new covenant reality, of gospel unity, and of Christ-like identity. Now I know it struck me afresh. We're doing some work on stewardship in our adult Bible class. We're talking about time. We're talking about strength. We're talking about money. Wouldn't it be easy when we think about those things to come up with a course on how you use your time, to come up with a formula for how you divide your strength, and to give you some kind of rules and regulations for how you employ your money. I can't remember who I was talking to the other day, but somebody had talked about a particular act of generosity, and it was the response of a, a man who was in gospel ministry, and he kind of nudged me and said something like, oh, we have to deal with this all the time, don't we? We're always having to chase people for money. More or less is what he said. And I thought, is that how the church operates? Is that how we fill our coffers in order that they may be emptied again? My friends, when we think about these things... It is not a course that we need. It's not a formula that we require. It's not a book to read. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms our attitudes and bears fruit in our actions. And we have seen that in this congregation many years ago, probably 50 or so now, when my father was first set apart as a uh, a pastor, full-time vocational in this congregation. The church was not generous or kind in its care of him. Individuals were, but the church hadn't got this right. I remember a bag of shopping turning up unannounced and without a face or a name on my parents' doorstep. And it was God's way of making sure there was food in the larder for my family when I was growing up. So we've enjoyed this kind of generosity. Somebody came and spoke to the then officers and spoke to them about their attitude. But it so happened that at the same time, my father was preaching through 1 Corinthians 8. Some of you... Are old enough and have been in long enough to, oh yes, we remember this. That is what transformed the disposition of the church. My friends, when you look at our budget now and you say, is this really how this congregation operates? If that ever gets divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will have nothing because we'll give nothing. And in God's kindness... That series of sermons established a pattern that endures to this day. Why? Because we fixed our eyes on the Christ who, being rich, for our sakes became poor. And it's him who transforms our attitude.
to the time he's given us, the strength we possess, and the money that we have. Christ-like men and women. If I said my application to this sermon is to give more, wouldn't it be a travesty? What if I say, be more like our Saviour, Jesus Christ? Then you can't help but give what you have because you're walking in his footsteps. This, then, is a beautiful snapshot. It's a freeze frame in the life of the new covenant community of God. It's beautiful. It's a conclusion. It's a transition. Persecution has brought the church closer to God and to one another. Satan has tried to, to bring it to nothing. The consequence is that there is more grace there than there was before because God has poured out his favour. There is more power there than there had been before because the Spirit is at work to bless. There is greater unity than there was before and it's showing itself in the same spirit of gospel generosity that has gripped them from the beginning. Wouldn't you love to be able to close your Bible at this point and say, and they all lived happily ever after? <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be able to say, Acts chapter 4, 32 to 37, that's us. And that's where we are, and that's where we live. My friends, there's a heavenly atmosphere about this point. But there's a hellish adversary against the church. And without stepping too far into what lies ahead, there's a reason why you've got a specific positive example of a man called Barnabas who having land sold it and brought the money that he gained and laid it at the apostles' feet because Satan hates this. That's why, thankful as we so often should be for seasons of peace and unity in the church, you have to expect a two-pronged assault from your adversary. He's tried persecution, pressure from without. What will he try next? Corruption, perversion from within. Be on your guard, brothers and sisters. This is beautiful. This is delightful. This is what we should crave. This is what we should pray for. This is what we should pursue. But it must be guarded. How do we guard it? By more rules and regulations? By courses and systems? By, by rotors and schedules? Or by the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ? See, what holds us together is him. What binds the living stones of the temple? is the crimson cement of the blood of Jesus Christ. What keeps tensions and suspicions and divisions from appearing amongst us is the love that we have for one another as those who have been loved by God in Christ who gave himself for us. And when we see Christ in his beauty, when in the preaching of the gospel he is lifted up, it grips us, it holds us, it changes us. My friends, the answer to every battle is more of Jesus Christ. Are we praying to the great God of heaven 
Are we seeking to see more of our great Saviour and his so great salvation? Are we craving more of this great Spirit that we might have great grace, that we might know great power, that it might produce among us a greater unity and a greater generosity, that by these means God might be pleased to help us not avoid persecution, but to hold fast through it. And if not to avoid corruption and perversion, to respond righteously to it, that God may preserve us pure, entire, sweetly united, and ready, like our Saviour, to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the body and for the glory of